Hey, this is Vanessa, and I'm the Prevention Services Coordinator at King County Sexual Assault Resource Center, or KSERC. This is Building Resilience, a project with the purpose of equipping people with what they need to end sexual violence. Just a heads up that I'll be talking about the harmful language that many folks in our society use to discuss sexual violence, and I know that can be really challenging for survivors to hear. There's an activity that I do with older teens and adults where I gather headlines and clips of media coverage of sexual assault and violence. You unfortunately don't have to dig too far into Google search to find headlines like women drank six Jaeger bombs in 10 minutes on the night that she was raped or don't become a rape victim at Christmas. I ask participants to tell me what they notice and I hear things like, well, it's pretty messed up to focus on how much this woman drank when the actual focus should be on the fact that someone sexually assaulted her. Or, why is there no mention of the person who committed the sexual assault? It's as if these things spontaneously happen, rather than them happening because a person chose to do this behavior in complete disregard of someone else's boundaries and consent. Also consider the coverage of Sarah Everard, a British woman who was raped and murdered by a UK police officer in March 2021. There was global outrage after British news coverage warned other women to quote-unquote be careful and not go out alone. The underlying message is an archaic patriarchal one, that sexual violence is inevitable and that potential victims and survivors should take extra precaution to not put themselves in a dangerous situation. In other words, this isn't a space that you should occupy because it's not meant for you. It's no wonder that when the discourse surrounding sexual violence is like this, survivors don't feel safe or comfortable seeking help and support. It's no wonder that so many survivors report feelings of guilt, doubt, or self-blame. And it's no wonder that sexual violence is largely minimized and those who commit sexual violence are not held accountable. In this episode, I speak with Mary Leskowski, who had been at KSERC for almost a decade and now is with the Children's Justice Center of King County. She's passionate about highlighting how language can shape response and understanding of violence. And I thought this was a really important thing to include our prevention series because the words that we use every day can help us dismantle a culture that accepts sexual assault as a normal part of life. Hi, Vanessa. I'm Barry Laskowski, and I'm employed as the Training and Outreach Coordinator for the Children's Justice Center of King County. And prior to that role, I worked alongside you and many others at the King County Sexual Assault Resource Center for a little over nine years, wow. where I focused on coordinating the system-wide response to sexual assault and specialized in advocating for survivors who are navigating the criminal justice process. Thank you, Mary, for your introduction. Um, let's let's go ahead and just start off with what is WordWatch? Um, first, thanks for inviting me. This is always exciting for me to talk about language and words. Uh, so I really appreciate you kind of telegraphing these ideas out on your podcast. But WordWatch was a project that KSARC started in 2016. And it was designed in response to a national conversation that was happening about how language impacts the outcome of sexual assault cases in the criminal justice process. And then taking that a step further, how sexual assault cases in the criminal justice process can impact our community understanding of the underlying issues and dynamics that surround sexual assault cases. So this conversation was primarily happening with academics, judicial leadership, and community organizations. One really great reference if folks want to do a deeper dive into this research is um, a program put together by Claudia Bailiff, 
when she was working at Legal Momentum called Raped or Seduced, how language helps shape our response to sexual violence. And I think that's one of the first kind of big studies that we became aware of at KSARC. And so we wanted to look and see how language was being used in King County with the understanding that language can never be neutral, right? Mm -hmm. The words we use to talk about sexual violence influences the way we perceive and respond to that issue. And we were concerned that unaccountable language creates communities where victims are devalued, sexual violence is tolerated, and then people who offend sexually are not held accountable. And so we developed this study that took place over about a two-year period where we had 70 volunteers who observed hearings in King County. And they observed hearings that were in Superior Court, which is the felony level adult court in King County. And so they observed trials, arraignment hearings, sentencing hearings, plea hearings. Um, and in addition, they observed sexual assault protection order hearings as well. And we developed uh, coding sheets for them. I think that's the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, and they were recording how sexual violence was being discussed, what sort of language was being used, how victims were being described, how victim behavior was being described. Um, if the court or other people within that process were looking at the offender's accountability kind of in a spotlight. And so additionally, KSARC staff, including myself, um, reviewed hundreds of documents from the court and from law enforcement using the same coding system to look at how sexual assault was being described. Um, and then after a couple of years, we evaluated all of that data and we put together a series of resources and trainings that we provide to our community partners, specifically those who interface with the criminal justice system, um, with the hopes of increasing accountable language choices to describe sexual assaults. So when our um, volunteers who were amazing and really the beating heart of this project. But when they were in the courtroom, those coding sheets that we developed had them look for a number of different ways that we saw unaccountable language being perpetuated within the criminal justice system. Um, and the first one was language that implies consent. So we felt at KSARC, um, and as was evidenced in the studies that I referenced earlier, that using the language of non-consent is absolutely crucial when we're talking about sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Because when we use consensual language, we paint a picture or create that word picture that fails to convey the reality of the event. Um, and then the next category was whether or not folks were defaulting to using minimizing language. And we saw that happening in two major ways throughout the study. One, by using euphemistic language like child porn, mm -hmm. which is not something that exists. And I'll unpack that a little bit. Um, pornography is something that is created by consenting adults. So children who are experiencing sexual violence are not consenting to pornography being created. What we have there are images of child sexual abuse. And so when we default to kind of minimizing or euphemistic terms, we kind of deflect the responsibility of the violence away from the perpetrator. And we can even like obscure agency and responsibility for the act itself. Mm -hmm. Or the second way is that we can often default to the passive voice when we talk about sexual assault. 
And that completely changes the subject-verb agreement in the sentence. Um, and when we use the passive voice, the subject, which is normally like the star of the show, mm -hmm. often completely takes a backseat. Right. And so when we use passive voice, we, again, stop focusing on the responsibility of the action taker. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last category was victim blaming language, which is unfortunately super common. And I think it's one of the most significant barriers to justice and accountability. And the reason for that is that it can often blame and pathologize the victim as a catalyst who excited the sexual desire of an otherwise good person, right? And so it kind of reformulates victims into perpetrators who are responsible for the acts that were committed against them. And it changes perpetrators into victims who are not responsible for their own actions. I think the kind of stereotype phrase for that is like, if they weren't wearing that particular type of clothing, this never would have happened, mm -hmm. right? And so I think in our communities, we've been socialized to blame the victim. We've mm -hmm. created this kind of pattern of choices and behaviors that everyone is supposed to live within. And if for some reason you step outside of those boundaries, it is your fault if you experience any type of harm or any type of violence. Um, and I think that's what a lot of our risk reduction strategies and prevention mm -hmm. are kind of based on, right? Mm -hmm. It's setting up all those guideposts that we're supposed to live within. And those can certainly be helpful and they can absolutely be useful. And if they can help increase your own sense of personal safety or how you navigate through the world, that's awesome. But that's not what prevention is, right? Mm -hmm. We're not getting to the root causes yeah. of what actually causes sexual yes. violence. Um, and I think that we see that within our language, because I think the focus on the victim distinguishes us as I will, I would never do that. Mm -hmm. Right. I would never walk down the street at night or I would never park my car in that parking garage, or I would mm -hmm. never drink this much alcohol mm -hmm. in this short a period of time. And so if I follow all of those rules, I won't experience violence. So we kind of unconsciously and sometimes very consciously and intentionally blame the victim if mm -hmm. they kind of stray outside of the social norms that we've created. Mm -hmm. And so our court watch volunteers had sheets which kind of reviewed all of this. And also they had the opportunity to provide positive feedback as well. And so if we saw any of these ideas being countered in a way that was really positive and productive and victim-centered, we wanted to uh, code that and analyze that as well so that we could celebrate the successes that we're actually seeing within our law enforcement investigations and within the criminal justice process in King County. Awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah. That That's such a cool opportunity for volunteers. I feel like I would have loved to do something like that. Um, and I can imagine how eye-opening it would have been for someone to sit in one of those hearings and to hear you know, language that we might think is pretty outdated. Um, yes. I think that's like my reaction sometimes when um, I did legal advocacy. Um, sure. Just shock that <laughs> um, some terms would be used by specifically defense attorneys, um, you know, to, to further their goal, obviously. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and we'll make sure that um, people can access the, the data um, on our website. So I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes so that Great. people can check it out. Um, so I, I also wanted to um, have this conversation with you um, in terms of preventing violence. Um, when I, you know, have conversations in classrooms with students, we often talk about, um, you know, what folks 
some folks call rape culture and, you know, some folks, you know, prefer to use other terms, but really, you know, talking about the larger society um, that allows sexual violence to be um, so prevalent. So we talk about the language that's used to describe, you know, the actions and describe the survivor um, and all of that. So um, it's not just something that impacts the criminal legal system, but the way that, you know, our society views and responds to sexual violence. Um, Can you speak to the importance of using accountable language in our everyday conversations surrounding sexual assault? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So I think the easiest way that I like to describe this for folks is to think about how when we describe an event, we characterize it. Um, I like people to think about the word pictures that are created when we use certain terms or when we use certain phrases. And that's not specific to sexual assault. I think it can be pretty generalizable. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. when you hear a certain word or phrase, I know that, you know, I've been socialized, I grew up here in the United States, that I create certain images in my brain when I hear certain phrases. Um, And with that can often be kind of unconscious judgments or values that are associated with those pictures, with those phrases. And so being really thoughtful about what we're evoking in the language that we're using. Um, One example that I give when I'm providing word watch trainings is the phrase sex with underage women. Mm So that was a phrase that was, I'm going to say popularized, although that should maybe be in air quotes, um, after Jeffrey Epstein's subsequent arrest and incarceration. And I like to point out that phrase because I think it's wrong, just fundamentally wrong in every sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is no such person as an underage woman. Right. That is a category of human that does not exist, right? Underage women are girls or teens. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking specifically about Jeffrey Epstein, I believe the statistic is that more than 80 women came forward to say that he molested them when they were teens. Mm -hmm. And some of those women say that they were as young as 13 when his predations began. And so referring to them as underage women, I think functions in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that phrase is in its own way really revealing um, because I think it suggests a culture that remains really reluctant to equate the interests of powerful men and the interests of vulnerable girls. And I think it suggests an ongoing ambivalence in our society about what it even means to be a girl in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think it automatically shifts our empathy away from the victim. Mm -hmm. And I think it creates a word picture, which is completely inaccurate when you think about the behaviors in the very intentional behaviors that it is attempting to describe. And when I pull back to an even kind of broader view about it, I have to think about like how language becomes embedded within our culture, right? And I think its effects are subtle, but cumulative. Um, And I think that our society can create a mood that normalizes, encourages, and allows violence, especially violence or sexual violence that's directed at the least powerful, safest or most marginalized Mm -hmm. targets. And so I think that when we analyze language, it can be really useful in demonstrating the ways that our society operates to uh, to sustain 
gender-based violence or inequities. And so I think it's interesting to look at language as a way to think about how those ideas become embedded in our culture and how those how language can actually shape both like social and gendered relationships. And so I think that language becomes this really fundamental site to analyze how oppression operates, mm -hmm. as well as a really critical site for how meaning itself is created. Mm -hmm. So when I started out as part of this WordWatch project so many years ago, I began to think initially that our vocabulary for sexual assault was just profoundly impoverished, mm -hmm. right? I started to feel like I was, and others were trying to use a language that made it as difficult as possible to describe sexual violence, that wanted, our society wanted that particular type of behavior to be unspeakable, mm -hmm. in the shadows, unnamed. And the more I thought about it and the more I interacted with this work and these ideas, I realized it's not that we don't have a vocabulary for talking about sexual violence, because we do, but the way that that vocabulary is used is often really inadequate. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that inadequacy is a harmless coincidence. I think that our language reflects our culture and mm -hmm. I think it reflects our culture's priorities. And our language reflects a culture that I think kind of intentionally doesn't want to make it easy to talk about sexual assault. I think our communities want to make it difficult, uncomfortable, and confusing because mm -hmm. so many of us still really grapple with the fact that this is happening in our communities at all. Right. And we would rather just kind of close the door on it and not address it whatsoever. So mm -hmm. when we do, we often use language that minimizes, implies consent or victim blames or mm -hmm. kind of softens the edges a bit because it's really emotionally hard for us as human beings to deal with the reality of what victims may experience during mm -hmm. the course of sexual assault. And so I think ultimately now, many years out from the study, I would argue that it's not that we lack this language, um, it's there, right? It's mm -hmm. the language mm -hmm. of power and abuse and control and consent. We just don't integrate those words in truly meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. And therefore the experiences of so many survivors don't neatly map onto the law or into those courtroom spaces or into the criminal justice process itself. And that's why I think it's really important to look at language in this really critical way because if we can't name it, we can't fix it. Mm -hmm. We can't come up with solutions. We can't come up with prevention. Mm -hmm. And then things will just kind of continue as usual. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Thank you for laying all of that out. Um, <laughs> it's it's so it's so so amazing too. Um, and you know, just taking that phrase that you started with, you know sex with underaged women, I believe, right? Yep. And how, yeah, like you said, like underage women in itself is, you know, what does that even mean, um, right? Who is that? It's an oxymoron <laughs> in a way. And then, you know, sex implies consent when that is not right. at all consensual. Um, and yeah, how often um, kind of that consensual kind of, I guess, oh God, what am I trying to say? There's a lot of implied consent when you just read headlines when it comes to, um, you know, sexual violence of any kind. Um, yeah. So, 
uh, I, I definitely think that language makes it really hard for anyone. But, you know, I, I think of the students that I talk with who are like, okay, well, you know, sexual assault only is what the law defines it as, right. which is very narrow. Um, super narrow. Yeah. Super narrow. Um, so I wanted to ask you about um, an instance that comes to mind for you when minimizing language really impacted the outcome of a criminal legal case that you've seen. Yeah, I think when I think about language and the impact on the criminal justice system, I think about it instead of in terms of like one specific case or one specific person's story, I think about it as like a larger domino effect, mm-hmm. right? I think about how essential language is to every step of the criminal justice process. And just to take you through some of my ideas around this, I think about how we can use poor language choices during victim interviews. Mm-hmm. I think about the impact of trauma on neurobiology and one's ability to retain and provide memories in a way that kind of fits this linear narrative that the judicial system absolutely loves. You know, we want a who, what, when, where, and why. Mm-hmm. And the research shows us that that is not how people typically store memories mm-hmm. during trauma. Mm-hmm. And so I think about how if you use language that is activating for someone in an interview, you will likely not get great information from them. They may not be able to retrieve or provide for you all of the information that's really helpful to support an investigation. And then I think about how, so you don't have the best interview, you maybe aren't able to conduct an ideal investigation, and then you send a case up to the prosecuting attorney's office. And when they're reviewing it, then they are exposed to similar language choices that are not necessarily accountable, that you know maybe minimize an offender's accountability or the kind of violence that might have been used during the sexual assault. Um, and then that case, maybe the prosecutor doesn't fully understand the circumstances behind mm-hmm. it. And in that case, maybe, maybe it doesn't even get filed. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly seen It's not uncommon for survivors of sexual assault to request court documents and court records of their investigation for a number of really valid reasons. One, because they just want to know the ins and outs of what happened behind the scenes. And two, we're seeing that civil courts, like for protection order hearings, um, domestic violence protection orders, sexual assault protection orders, the court is often requesting records from those criminal investigations to help inform their decisions around these civil protection orders. And so survivors will often interface with their records in that way. And so it wasn't uncommon for a survivor to review a report and say, but this doesn't actually capture what I experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not representative of essentially the story of my truth, right? Right. Yeah. And so as an advocate working at CaseArc, I certainly had opportunities to talk with law enforcement and prosecuting attorneys and to advocate for opportunities for victims to be able to clarify and provide additional information around their experiences. But what we're seeing is that poor language choices create obstacles at every step. Mm -hmm. And so even if we're able to have a case filed, it's really possible then that the prosecuting attorney who needs to represent that case in court isn't able to do it in an effective and compelling way. And therefore a judge or a jury may not understand the reality of the defendant's kind of assaultive Mm -hmm. behaviors. And then I think about the reporter 
that might be in that courtroom and might be taking down information and then sharing it with our larger community. And then our community begins to think about the norms around sexual assault, if sexual violence is tolerated, the scrutiny with which you know, victims are treated in our court system. And I think there have certainly been some really interesting studies that show that the way that our media represents sexual violence can dictate those community norms to victims and show them how costly it is mm -hmm. to come forward. And so, and then, right. and the kind of building block or the thread throughout all of this is the language choices mm -hmm. that we are going to use from the very beginning, because I think it sets the tone for how seriously we take these issues, whether or not victims feel heard and understood and supported, and then whether or not we're able to share or recreate the reality of their experiences in a compelling way throughout the court process itself. So lastly, um, you know, I, I want to make sure that we give some space for um, listeners to hear what they can do after listening to this. So um, what three takeaways would you want to leave us with? I came up with more than three. Oh, beautiful. Um, yes. <laughs> but my first one is to have some compassion with yourself and others. Because I think that we have all been socialized mm -hmm. to default to this type of language yes. when we're talking about sexual assault. I know that that's true for me. Mm -hmm. I think it's certainly true for other people in mm -hmm. our community. So just to have that little bit of compassion, right? To understand that you are working to undo something that mm -hmm. you may have learned throughout your entire life. Yeah. And that you are looking to change kind of culture. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that can happen overnight. I wish that it could, mm -hmm. but I know that this is a process for a lot of people. So have some patience with yourself and with others. And I think it's really important to be critical of the media that you're consuming mm -hmm. and to keep an eye out for whether or not uh, you're reading articles that blame the victim, mm -hmm. minimize sexual assault, use consensual language. And if you see that happening, is there a way that you can kind of thoughtfully and responsibly hold journalists or reporters accountable for the language that they use to talk about sexual assault. Um, I've been on some panels about the study with journalists in our community, and they've been really open and receptive to these ideas. And these are certainly things that they grapple with as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that they would welcome feedback from community members. Um, I think another way is to kind of be thoughtful and intentional about the language that you are using when you're describing sexual violence, to be really thoughtful about how you are centering the victim's experience and where you are intentionally or unintentionally assigning responsibility for the actions that have happened. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I would look for opportunities for how you can call someone in when you hear them using unaccountable language to describe sexual assaults. Um, how are you going to be able to provide them with some support or education about other ways to talk about sexual assault? Could you give some examples for better ways to describe either a victim's behaviors, uh, the outcome of a criminal justice case, or maybe just you know simply point out like, huh, we're talking a lot about this suspect's bright future. I wonder why we're not giving equal weight to what the victim experienced and how that might have impacted the course of their life moving mm -hmm. forward or what they wanted to accomplish. So I think it's, I think there's an opening there to ask questions in a way that is thoughtful and creates conversation as opposed to just completely shutting down that dialogue. 
Thank you to Mary Leskowski for the content in this episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the great resources that were mentioned in this episode. This episode was edited and produced by me, Vanessa Corwin of King County Sexual Assault Resource Center. Find us online at kcsarc.org, on socials at kcsarc, or email us at education at kcsarc.org. Thanks for listening.